The Last Word with Matt Cooper. It's Culture Club time and Mark O'Connell is back with us again. The reason I say back, not because he has done a Culture Club before, but you do remember he was with us recently to talk about his terrific book in relation to the murder of Malcolm MacArthur. But it's a previous book that we want to talk about to start and how it's been adapted into a play, not once, but twice, I think, in some respects, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, that's right. Although this this current show might be a bit of a stretch to call it an adaptation, it's kind of a sequel to an adaptation. So it's it's an entirely original work. Uh, so this is how to be a machine two point zero. To be a machine version two point zero. That's right. Oh, two, yeah. Okay, yeah. and explain to be a machine two version two point zero. What can people expect to see when it's on in the Dublin Theatre Festival? Yeah, well, I don't expect uh, I don't explain too much, but it's. Uh, Broadly speaking, it's a kind of a virtual reality theatre experience in which uh, it's a small number of tickets for each show. So it's uh, sort of 10 or 15 audience members, something like that, will go into the space, uh, put on uh, a VR headset and be kind of um, projected into the person of Jack Gleason, who is uh, playing a kind of version, uh, a very loose version of himself in this show. And there's lots of kind of trickery with identity and kind of uh, perception and point of view and all these kinds of things. So it gets a little bit, uh, gets a little bit existential and kind of slightly crazy. So it'll be interesting, I think. You've written all this yourself, have you? No, no, no. not at all, no. Uh, I'm in the room uh for the writing of the play, but it's uh, dead centre, Bush, McArzle and, and Ben Kidd, who I worked with on the adaptation of the first show, and it's 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 really their show. Uh, I'm kind of I'm in the in the writers' room and I'm involved, but uh, it's very much a dead centre production. But inspired by the book, yeah, inspired by the themes of the book for sure. Okay, yeah. Okay, what's it going to be like for people? Uh, I suspect a little disorienting. Hopefully exciting, uh, funny, a little, little scary, maybe slightly confusing. Uh, I think it'll be, it'll be the the kind of um, wager, I suppose, is that people won't have seen or experienced anything quite like this before in in theatre or in any other medium um, that we're aware of. Go back and remind us of what "To Be a Machine" was about. So, where the, the original sort of source material in the book? Yeah, I mean, we're going back. Uh, well, six seven, years, six, seven years now, 2017, however long that, it, that is. Um, yeah, it was my first book and it was about um, a movement known as transhumanism, which is this kind of uh, social movement based in and around Silicon Valley. Um, and it's very much predicated on, on the idea that technology and sort of transformative technologies will change what it means to be human. So I'm looking at things like uh, radical life extension you know, to the point of immortality, using artificial intelligence to expand human intelligence and, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff that I was looking at back then seemed like it was on the kind of further, further rim of the kind of curve of things that might be likely, and they're kind of they're kind of coming into the mainstream now. Somehow. Yeah, that arrival of AI into the mainstream, mm. the speed at which is happening, is that surprising you? A little bit, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that there's anything uh, sort of particularly prescient or, or you know, kind of prophetic about the book or even any of the people who I talk to about the book. But I have been, uh, yeah, somewhat sort of wrong-footed by the speed with which AI is encroaching on, particularly the creative. And does it worry you? You know, I kind of go back and forth on it. Like there are moments where I think, you know, there's just no way that AI is going to be able to do the, at least the kind of writing that I do or any kind of like truly creative writing. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, uh, you know, just to give you an example, I had a slightly strange experience recently of, uh, uh, my dad sent me a link to a piece that was in, I think the Sunday independent or one of the, one of the weekend papers. And it was about, um, summaries of literary works, uh, that have been kind of created by, by AI and are published on, on Amazon. So you can buy, you know, in a sort of a cliff notes kind of way, you can buy a, you know, 35 page summary of, of my book on Amazon that n- no human being has, has ever had any hand in. So, uh, there are like 10, 12, 13 of these things for, you know, even for my new book. Um, so I find that kind of slightly strange and unsettling that, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's any realistic prospect of an AI version of my book replacing my book in, in the market. I can't really see how anyone's going to want to read those things. But the fact that these texts are just being generated and kind of pumped out and the sort of the culture is being flooded with these cultural products is is uh, a little unsettling and quite... And then to get back to the play that's in the theatre festival, so at what stage does virtual reality and you using the virtual reality he- headsets become enhanced reality or even a step beyond reality? Yeah, well the idea of the kind of uh, conceit at the at the outset of the of the play, we'll call it for want of a better term, is that um, theatre is not immersive enough. So you're sitting in the theatre and you're kind of distracted. You're distracted by yourself, by your own thoughts. You know, it's not quite real enough. Uh, and you know, virtual reality has the prospect of immersing one in the world of of a of an experience. Um, whether that's forcing your concentration enough. to be yes, clearer, it, or more enhanced. Exactly. It, it, like it, it completely takes over your kind of uh, your world of perception and so on. Um, the play kind of you know plays with that in lots of different ways. Plays with that assumption, but that's kind of the um, that's the the okay. position from which we start. Very interesting. Okay, yeah. cultural club choices. Let's get to those. Some of which are more conventional. And we ask every guest to start with the first piece of music, often a single that they remember buying. And you remember Elton John's "I'm Still Standing." Mm, yeah, slightly. Why so? Yeah, slightly strange one for me. I, I was trying to think of what age I, I must have been when I. I got this uh, cassette single. It was probably 1986 or something, so it would have been, you know, six or seven. And I got it with Texaco club points, those little stamps that you would collect on a card. Uh, and I think it was just the one that they happened to have, you know, the one that they had in stock or whatever. Um, I remember my sister got um, a single by the Mini Pops, which was like a... Do you remember the Mini Pops? No. They were like a... I think they did sort of... Uh, cover versions, sort of poppy cover versions of ah, like 1950s. Children they were all like, sitting, they singing were little kids. old hits. Okay. Exactly, yeah, they were little kids. I think they've been kind of brushed under the carpet since the 80s. But I got, uh, yeah, Elton John's I'm Still Standing, which um, I don't remember being particularly enamoured with the song, but I was really just very into the idea of owning this tape. It was the first, you know, the first piece of music, the first kind of album or, or, or single as it was that I, that I ever owned. And I was very proud of myself for, for having acquired this thing. Let's hear a little bit of it. You can never know what it's like Your blood like when it freezes just like ice There's a cold and lonely light that shines from you You wind up like the wreck you hide Behind that mask you use And did you think this fool could never win? Well look at me, I'm coming back again Taste of love in a simple way And if you need to know while I'm still standing You just fade away Don't you know I'm still standing Better than I ever did 
thought Mark O'Connell, your musical tastes have evolved quite substantially since, haven't yeah, they? To some extent, but you know, listening to it there, you know, it still stands up. I, I, I know I said I wasn't particularly enamoured with it, but as I was listening to it, I didn't go back and listen to it again when I was choosing the uh, the cultural picks. But um, it's a good track. A, it's a good track. Yeah, I, I, did, I do, I do now have a memory of like listening to. I think. It, the, the single had no B-side. It was just the same song on both sides of the tape. So, you know, I would listen to it over and over again and just kind of flip it over and press play. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot of repetition. Okay. Favourite album is one I'm not familiar with. It's called Caput by Destroyer. Yeah, I love Destroyer. He's great. He's this um, Canadian kind of singer. Destroyer suggests like a black metal band or something or a death metal band. Uh, you know, his his music couldn't be... Couldn't be further from that. It's very kind of, um, it's very uh, melancholy, kind of funny, quite literary. Um, there's a little bit of kind of soft rock element to it almost, uh, but he's just a really unique uh, unique and kind of compelling performer, and I just love his music, and I particularly like that album. Um, but the track we have from it is called Chinatown. Yeah. Chinatown from the album Caput. You also nominated another album that stayed with you from your teens, and that was uh, the Wu Tang's Thirty Six Chambers. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell um, us about that. Well, the Wu Tang were just like a huge cultural phenomenon in the nineties, and they still, you know, th- there hasn't been anything like it really since. I'm sure you recall what a big deal they were. I don't. Um, so you don't. better explain okay. to me. Yeah, I mean, the Wu Tang Clan were like a seminal hip hop group. There was like you know a million of them in the, in the group. There was like this in- insane kind of concentration. There's almost like implosion of like ridiculous talent of these guys from. Uh, they were largely from, I think, Staten Island in New York. Uh, and uh, at the center of it was the RZA, who was this, like, um, <clears throat> really extraordinary genius who, you know, put together the whole group. A lot of them, uh, quite a few of them were his cousins, I think. Um, but, you know, he, he wrote most of the music and was quite quite a sort of dictatorial, dictatorial figure. But um, they released this really incredible album called Return to the 36 Chambers, which was full of, like, samples from uh, old... Chinese kung fu films and and things things like that, but they just created this like absolutely unique sound, absolutely unique kind of aesthetic and attitude, and it was like really uh you know it was kind of a a real breath of fresh air for me as a you know fifteen or sixteen year old kid to hear this stuff, and it's still like it still absolutely stands up to me. It's not that I don't I, I 
wouldn't go back and listen to it that often, but when I do, it you know it takes me back. Then we asked you for favorite band, and you gave us quite a few. I suppose more conventionally, you say you always love Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, again, that goes back to my childhood. You know, stuff that I, stuff that I would have listened to in the car with my dad going to school and stuff like that. You know, uh, I would have sort of semi dismissed it as a as a teenager and in my twenties, and then I kind of went back and discovered them in my thirties, and I just think they're maybe the greatest rock band of all time and the kind of the idea of Fleetwood Mac is so appealing as well this sort of chaotic uh, kind of group of people who were like you know completely passionate and were having affairs with each other and doing loads of drugs and creating this amazing music uh, and just like you know they somehow kept going for for just decades and uh, they just made so much incredible music but then you also gave us Proto Martyr. Tell yes. us about Proto Martyr. Proto Martyr is, yeah, maybe slightly more, uh, I wouldn't say obscure, but they're probably <laughs> certainly uh, compared to, to Fleetwood Mac. But um, I, I guess they're sort of a, a post punk band. They're from, uh, they're from Detroit. Um, and uh, yeah, they're quite abrasive, quite dark, quite funny. Um, I really respond to their music. It kind of, uh, you know, I grew up listening to a lot of that kind of stuff. I grew up listening to a lot of uh, punk rock and post-punk and things like that and they kind of speak to uh something that you know a kind of a, an outline that was formed in my cultural kind of world at that time and i think they're just extraordinary i think they're the best kind of rock band currently working that i'm aware of anyway well let's hear from the album formal growth and the desert by proto martyr let's hear make way welcome to the haunted That's Proto Martyr. You've given us a list of other names that I have to admit I'm not familiar with: Arthur Russell, Alex G, Pharaoh Sanders. Yeah, Tell I'm just us. kind of spreading my bets here. You know, uh, it's, I've, I've, when I was when I was answering the questions, I was thinking of like my son will often just approach me and go, "Dad, what's what's your favorite movie of all time, or what's your favorite song of all time?" And I like invariably will just say, "I, I mean, I can't answer that question." You know, it was a very unsatisfactory answer to hear from your dad, but I'll just say, I don't have a favourite movie. It doesn't work like that. You know, it changes every six weeks or whatever, or it changes... And as, I'm going to be asking you that very question yeah, in the well, second part of the Culture Club, but anyway. But ironically, you know, uh, I did for you, Matt, what I have uh, failed to do for my own son, which is to give definitive... Okay. Yeah. Is Kilkenny you actually nominated the favourite gig you were ever oh, yeah, at? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, an easy, that was an easy one. Actually. Why was it easy? Well, it just was a really formative kind of thing. And the fact that it was in my hometown, you know, these... Uh, 
events. You know, Kilkenny is a, quite a cultural hotspot, and it, it was back then as well with you know the arts festival and so on. Uh, but to have a band like Fugazi play in Kilkenny when I was, I guess I was eighteen, nineteen, um, and they were a huge thing for me when I was when I was a teenager. They were like a huge kind of cultural touchstone for me, and the fact that they came to my town and played in. The Friary Hall was like a massive, massive thing. And like, you know, everyone between the ages of like, you know, 15 and probably 28 in, in Kilkenny was at that gig or at least, you know, wanted to be at it. And it was it was a pretty extraordinary You're not moment. the first person to have nominated Fugazi as Is it happens. Right? I don't think it was from Kilkenny. Yeah. I can't remember who it was or where it was, but definitely yeah. Fugazi have come up. And let's hear a little bit of Fugazi performing, not in Kilkenny, but also from 1999 in Hamburg. We need to take a break in the Culture Club. Mark O'Connell, who of course this year wrote A Thread of Violence and also has To Be a Machine at the Dublin Theatre Festival, is with us for the Culture Club. We have lots of other choices to get to after the break. Welcome back. Mark O'Connell is with us for the Culture Club tonight. Now, earlier you said you can't tell your son a favourite movie, but you have actually nominated one for us. <clears throat> a Woman Under the Influence. Tell us about this. Well, I say it's my favourite movie, but this, you know, this kind of confirms what I was just saying about these conversations with my son. It just happens to be a movie that I watched or, you know, rewatched recently. Uh, watched it on movie. And it's been years since I'd seen it. It's a film by John Cassavetes, who's, um, uh, you know, made a, a run of extraordinary films in, in, uh, in Hollywood or in Los Angeles, I guess, in the 19... 19- Sort of nineteen sixties, seventies, and 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 into the eighties, uh, and he made these films. Uh, this particular film uh, stars his wife Jenna Rowlands, and it's about uh, a woman who is, you know, it's never quite identified in the film, but she's got, um, she's kind of undergoing a bit of a, a mental breakdown, and she has, you know, underlying mental illness, and uh, it's just an extraordinary performance by by Jenna Rowlands. It's just like she plays the part in a way that I've never seen anyone act before on screen, and she's, uh, you know, you're kind of you're just wondering what she's going to do next. You're wondering where she's going to go. It's it's you know she plays it almost like. Uh, a child in a way there's something childlike about her performance but it's it's never corny it's always kind of like um yeah you're just on edge watching her you know and there's this like immense pathos to it it's just an extraordinary film it also stars uh peter falk aka colombo who was in a bunch of uh Cassavetes' films and he just had this extraordinary kind of uh ensemble of actors who he worked with again and again peter falk ben gazzara uh Cassavetes himself was a really gifted actor he was in um rosemary's baby He's the, the husband in Rosemary's Baby. Um, but, uh, yeah, a real inspiring figure for me. Okay, I'm not going to play a clip because I'm conscious of the time. And I want to get to favourite play, given that we're talking <clears> to you about your own, uh, which is going to be in the Dublin Theatre Festival. You're, again, you're not the first person to have picked Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Tape. Before we talk about it, let's just hear a little bit of it performed by the actor Patrick McGee. Just been listening to that stupid bastard I took myself for 30 years ago. 
Hard to believe I was ever as bad as that. Well, thank God that's all done with anyway. The eyes she had. Everything there. Everything. All the... Everything there. Everything on this old muck ball. All the light and dark and famine and feasting of the ages. Yes. Let that go. Jesus. Take his mind off his homework. Jesus. Oh, well. Maybe he was right. Maybe he was right. I know it wasn't Patrick McGee you saw play the part. Where did you see it? Who was in it? And why does that appeal to you so much? It was John Hurt, uh, and he was in The Gate. Um, I'm trying to remember the year. It's probably like 2010, 2011 or something like that. Um, I had, you know, I'd read the play and I'd studied it. I, I did uh, Irish literature. I did a master's in Irish literature in, in Trinity. Um, and I think it was the year... I did that master's maybe, maybe the year after that I saw the play. So I'd read it a bunch of times and probably written about it and, and so on. I mean, it's a play that works extraordinarily well as a text. You can, you know, you can read it. It's like sort of uh, long uh, sections of very beautiful, very poetic prose. It's very melancholy, very funny in parts. I mean, it's Beckett, so, it, you know, it has, it has that kind of abrasive humour. But it's essentially uh, one man, an old man, sitting on a stage... Um, listening to tapes of himself from former periods in his life and kind of going back over uh, regrets, you know, things he didn't do, kind of cringing at uh, his naivety in the past and so on. And it's this like really beautiful use of uh, technology in the play and technology and memory. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's a, it's just a gorgeous, um, dark, uh, very moving play. Masters in Irish Literature, is that why you've given us James Joyce as Ulysses as your favourite book? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I'd like to say something a little bit more original, but it just, it's, of all the kind of uh, works of art that I have experienced, and of all the things I've talked about here over the last 20 minutes or so, that's the one, that's the that's the work of art that stays with me and that kind of continues why? to live with me. Um, <clears throat> I think it's just an infinite book, you know, it's just endless um, and I'm not talking purely in terms of length, so it's famously pretty long, but there's just, the whole world is in there, you know? It's like it's like a vast, teeming city of a book, you know? And, and living in Dublin and being a reader of Joyce and of Ulysses in particular kind of creates this self-perpetuating kind of aliveness of the book, you know? The book is always, once you've read it and... You know, I, I go back and read it, and this is, again this is such a kind of a cliched thing to say, but I do go back and read it at different periods and you find different things in it. But, you know, one of the things that I keep finding in the book is Dublin, and it, it sort of, it lights up the city for me in a way. And, uh, you know, it becomes this kind of, it, you know, when you're reading Ulysses, uh, Dublin becomes this kind of interactive, you know, 
uh, map of the book. You know, it's like you're passing these these fictional ghosts everywhere you go, and uh, yeah, it's a really um, it brings the city alive, and and uh, you know, uh, it's kind of a it's a it's a monument to Dublin in this in this really kind of beautiful and, and moving way. So yeah, it's uh, it's something that just keeps keeps going for me. You also mentioned though, Jorge Luis Borges. Mm, Borges is a, a, a really important figure for me as well. You know, I'm uh, mentioning fiction. You know, fiction is a big thing for me, even though I'm a, a non-fiction writer. Uh, Borges was uh, someone I read at a quite an impressionable age, I suppose, maybe eighteen, nineteen. Um, and you know, he he only wrote short stories. He's sort of the opposite of Joyce in a way, although he's every bit as great a kind of figure of literary modernism. But um, you know, he had this. Uh, wonderful idea that you know to write uh, big novels, sort of great great works, was a what he called a laborious madness. The thing to do was to um, to write short descriptions of of longer books. So you know he he wrote very very short stories. They were all kind of short um, stories and, and prose pieces. Um, but he just had this uh, you know really kind of unique uh, way of. Um, I guess, like encapsulating philosophical paradoxes and um, creating these like really indelible ideas in in very short, very short, um, very short spaces. And uh, yeah, there there are there's a way of of thinking about reality and the sort of interconnectedness of of truth and fiction that uh, I associate with Borges. But just um, to finish on books, so you also nominated a non-fiction book, given that that's what you write, mm. uh, Annie Dillard's. For the time being, what is that? Yeah, this is a it's, a, it's a book that I kind of, again, a bit like Ulysses, I return to it again and again. Um, and one of the reasons I find myself returning it to it is that it feels like I would, I would be hard pressed to say what it's even about. It's a really unique and unusual book. Dillard is, uh, she's probably best known for a book called Pilgrim at Tinder Creek, which is kind of a nature book. It's a book about, you know, the kind of, experience of nature and particularly she's a religious writer you know she's very much a, a Christian in the kind of mode of um, uh, she, how would you how would you encapsulate her she writes about nature uh, in a way that she sees God in nature but she's a, like a very very vivid poetic very eccentric writer but for the time being is I say I would struggle to say what it's about it's essentially it's an attempt by her to reckon with the existence of evil and suffering in the world. Um, so, you know, she's a very devout Christian, not in a kind of a doctrinaire way, but uh, she's very much, uh, you know, a Christian. And she's reckoning head on with the scale of the suffering in, in the world. And she's dealing with, you know, very ugly themes and trying to trying to account for her Christian faith in, in the face of of the okay. world's kind of suffering and darkness. Beautiful Unfortunately, book. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to speed through this. But I like the fact that you've picked Seinfeld as yeah. something you loved as a teenager, but that mm. you still possibly enjoy now as much, even more. Yeah, I mean, it's so sophisticated. I probably wasn't picking up on half of what was going on in that show as a kid. I just found it hilariously funny, which, of course, I still do. And I think it's the only thing from that period that I would go back to and find as funny or, you know, even funnier than I did back then I mean it's just uh, it's a really unique and kind of incredible piece of work and now you're a Nathan Fielder fan 
Nathan Fielder, yeah, I think he's I think he's incredible. Um, he, he's got a show called Nathan for You, which I guess came out maybe ten years ago. In which it's kind of a, I wouldn't say it's a parody, but it's sort of a like a really sort of postmodern spin on these kind of reality TV shows where a guy like you know Gordon Ramsay or whoever goes in and fixes a business, um, and he just takes it in this like these insanely creative and absurd kind of uh, directions. And, and the rehearsal is uh, he sort of takes it even further with this show. I'd highly recommend it to anyone who wants to see something different and slightly unsettling and hilarious. Okay, the final thing that we have is The Buried Treasure and you've gone television as well and you've gone a TV miniseries by Shane Meadows, The Virtues, mm. starring Stephen Graham, who I believe is very much a favourite actor of yours. Yeah, I think Graham's like a genius. I think he's just an unbelievable actor. And like I found, like the uh, the thing that I find when watching him is that he's almost too good. As in you watch him in a cast, you watch him in an ensemble cast or something and it's as though he's just this guy you know, he's just this person uh, and everyone else around him is acting. You know, it's just, uh, he's so uh, natural and sort of charismatic. But this show, The Virtues by the um, English filmmaker Shane Meadows, it's filmed largely in Ireland actually and set largely here, but uh, it's um, a very, very dark story uh, about sort of hidden trauma and, and abuse. And in a way, it sounds like a million other things that have come out about Irish history and so on, but it's just done in this really, really uh, beautiful way. And uh, yeah, I think Meadows is an extraordinary filmmaker and uh, the combination of him and Stephen Graham is like... Really, I don't think that many people saw it, possibly because it's so so dark and kind of uh, forbidding. You've got me interested in seeing it now, particularly as Stephen Graham is such a terrific actor. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. Mark O'Connell, it's been great having you here for the Culture Club. Uh, To Be a Machine version 2.0 is going to be on in the Smock Alley Theatre from the 29th of September to the 8th of October as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival. And of course, the book about the notorious double murderer Malcolm MacArthur is A Thread of Violence. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.